boat and I survive the sails, sir. I survive the pits of fish and take some home to lie, sir. Good afternoon. It's time for Boat Talk on WERU-FM Blue Hill and WERU.org with your co-hosts, John Johansson and Alan Sprague. However, the weather is keeping us in port, so here is an old snow day show. Boat Talk usually is a call-in show for people contemplating things naval, but the weather being what it is, the engineers are out chipping ice off the antenna and are not here to answer the phone. You can always contact Boat Talk by email anytime at boattalk at gmail.com. Rather than play some old rerun Boat Talk, we have two new segments for you, never before heard by normal people. The first is a true account from 1850, told in the voice of a crew member. The second segment is very recent. Again, no phone calls today. This is a pre-recorded show. Here is the wreck of the Jenny Lind. My name is Richard Holton. I'm an old man now and lucky to be one. There are 29 of us lucky ones. But it wasn't just luck that saved us. By working together, we saved ourselves. But that was a long time ago. We were all on the good ship Jenny Lind. But let me go back a bit first. Jenny Lind was a popular singer from Sweden who toured all across Northern Europe in the 1840s. She filled the halls everywhere she went and earned the title of Swedish Nightingale. My father was the captain of the Joseph Anderson, and we lived in London. And once, when he was home, he took mother to see Jenny Lynn perform. The next day they both raved about how sweet she sounded. I was 20 years old then and wanted to be a sailor like my father. He had already put in a good word for me down at the docks. And late in January of 1850, I was told to meet a Captain Taylor on board the Jenny Lind, which was tied up on the same dock as my father's boat. I thought a boat named after a beautiful singer certainly sounded better than naming them after some rich guy. I met Captain Taylor. He said he knew and respected my father. He told me that the Jenny Lind was 141 and a half feet long and displaced 484 tons. Seemed pretty big to me. I learned the Jenny Lind had just been built over in Canada and this would be the first work for her. He asked what my boating experience was and I said, uh, I could row pretty good. He smiled and said, good. After we talked a bit, he asked me if I would be interested in joining the boat's crew. I was young and full of adventure then and jumped at the chance to see the world. Captain Taylor said we were going all the way to Australia. I barely knew where Australia was, but planned to see and hear Jenny Lind before we left England. Unfortunately, 
I soon learned that Miss Lind was preparing to go to America for a big tour and wasn't performing. My father helped me to pack a sea bag. He told me, Try to keep as few possessions as possible and keep a close eye on them, for not all sailors are trustworthy. Mother mostly wrung her hands and said she will miss me. The Jenny Lind was quickly booked with 36 passengers headed for Adelaide, Australia. And when the time came to leave, I helped the passengers with their luggage and showed them to their cabins. Some of the men bunked together in the forward large cabin, and by the time everyone was on board, the boat seemed quite full. The trip to Australia would be a long one, halfway around the world, and I was looking forward to see what faraway places looked like. I learned how to be a sailor pretty quickly while we were headed southwest. There are lots of ropes that had to be learned to handle the sails when the wind shifted or the ship changed course. After a while, I got a hang of it and especially enjoyed steering. Boy, was it rough when we went past the tip of South America. That wasn't so enjoyable. And some of the passengers became quite seasick. That was the first sight of land that we'd seen since leaving England and sailing for weeks. Then we sailed for about four or five more weeks, seeing nothing. One does not know how large the Earth is until you sail around it, and we were only going halfway around the globe. I became friends with another new crew member from London. His name was Richard Tope and we had to learn many things at first. We tried to help each other as best we could. And since we are both Richards, everyone called us by our last names. The captain seemed to be happy with our progress. I also learned to cook on the trip. Six of us crew members rotated doing the cooking for the passengers. There was a separate cook stove for the passengers. And it, and it had a large boiler on the side that made hot water for cooking and cleaning. Good thing I had help cooking the first few times. After a while, a couple of the women passengers volunteered to help with the cooking. Maybe they did it for their own sake. The Jenny Lynn performed beautifully the whole way, and the crew to a man thought there could be no finer vessel. Finally, we reached Australia and traveled what seemed to be a long way along the coast before reaching Adelaide. The passengers departed and we put on some provisions before sailing around to a place called Phillips Bay, which was near Melbourne. There, we did final provisioning of the boat for the next voyage. We'd be heading to a place called Singapore. I'd never heard of Singapore, and Captain Taylor showed me where it was on one of his maps. He said it was a very different place, and they all spoke Chinese, which was impossible to understand. I asked why we had more crew than passengers. He replied that we would be needing more crew for the trip from Singapore to London 
And Singapore was a bad place to get a new crew. Huh. I wondered if I wanted to go ashore at all. We refilled the water barrels, packed in plenty of food in our galley and down below, helped the cook clean up the stove, cookware, and kettles. Captain Taylor said that since we had only 13 passengers for this trip, the passenger stove wouldn't be needed. So, with some difficulty, we partially disassembled it and stowed it in the bilge along with several bags of flour and kegs of nails that we were also hired to take to Singapore just a couple of days before we were scheduled to leave. We had already laid in several iron bars to be shipped, and we were quite happy that the bars were loaded first because it would have been very difficult to fit them in the space remaining at the bottom of the boat now. In just two weeks, we were ready to set out again. Thirteen passengers boarded for the trip to Singapore, with three of them staying on for the trip to London after Singapore. The captain expected to pick up several more passengers going to London in Singapore. We left Phillips Bay on September 3rd, headed east for a while, and then turned north to sail up between Australia and New Zealand. We'd been underway for a couple of weeks, cruising along nicely as the Jenny slipped through the waves with ease. I was at the wheel that fateful occasion on September 21st, on a heading of north by west, as dictated by Captain Taylor, before he turned in for some sleep. We were way out between Australia and New Zealand in what we thought was deep water that dark night. The two previous days had been cloudy, so the captain had been unable to take any fixes with his sextant. The mate on duty was Mr. Harper, and he called to the lookout, What is that black I see ahead? The lookout turned and yelled back, It's just the reflection of a dark cloud. I could hear Mr. Harper grumbling something about not liking it as he walked over to the starboard side of the boat and looked down. He immediately turned around and yelled, Hard to port! Hard to port! I swung the wheel over fast as I could, and Jenny started to turn into the wind as Mr. Harper loudly yelled down the companionway, All hands on deck! All The boat made a loud, jarring crash sound that sickened my stomach immediately. Jenny Lynn fell over onto her right side, and all hell broke loose. We had run up on a reef in the middle of the ocean, and I was at the wheel. The waves pushed Jenny further and further onto the reef, and the boat kept laying over more and more with each wave crashing into the port side until we were tipped about 45 degrees wallowing on the rocks. I couldn't stand up without holding onto something. 
and very shortly later the captain came back on deck looked over the side and swore a blue streak I'd never heard him swear at all before but at least he wasn't swearing at me you could hear the boat grinding on the rocks it was an awful sound the masts were shaking terribly as as more crew and passengers clambered on deck all with looks of terror on their faces the women and children were screaming men were shouting mr sanborn was clutching his bible and mrs sanborn was clutching their three children waves were breaking over the port side of the boat pushing her ever further onto the coral and soaking everything on deck the captain called for the masts to be cut away in hopes that the boat might right herself the ship's carpenters quickly scrambled into the shop and brought up two saws and several knives. The carpenters began cutting into the mass while several of us used the knives to cut away the rigging holding the mass. It wasn't easy, but eventually they cut them free and they went crashing through the side rails into the water. It didn't help. By then, Jenny was too far onto the reef to float free. She just lay there grinding herself to death. Some of the waves hitting the hull would splash up over the rails and soak the deck and everyone. Passengers were yelling, crying, and praying. We all had somehow scrambled to the high side of the deck, each with one foot standing on the cabin sides. We were really splashed a lot there, but the swirling current around the lower rail that was now in the water really looked dangerous. Captain Taylor realized that Jenny would be in pieces soon, and he ordered we launch the longboats, which were lashed down. The deck was at such a steep angle. When we cut free the boat, it slid right down the deck hard against the bulwarks with a loud crash and then slid over the rail into the gushing water at an odd angle hitting the waves on its side it immediately swamped and then drifted away from the boat injuring the captain's leg in the process we decided to launch the jolly boat next which we did with great care the use of one of the davits on the port side. The water was quite rough and the boat moved around a lot because the ropes that we had tied to it were being held by some of the crew on the upper side of the deck whenever they could get a foothold. They were pretty far from the boat and an angle above it so they weren't in good positions to hold the little boat in. The captain said to me, Well, Holton, you said you could row pretty good. I know you can now. You and Tope get into that boat and hold her close while we lower some gear to you. Then use a line to drift back a ways from the boat where the water should be more calm. Hopefully the seas will subside and then call for you to come back in to start loading the women and children. Good luck, son. My crewmate friend Richard Tope and I got into the rope harness that old sails had fabricated, and we were lowered into the boat, which was a tough thing to do 
with it moving around constantly. Tope was lowered first. I could see the burly guy was having difficulty holding the boat close to Jenny in the swirling seas. Even with the water as rough as it was, many of the passengers in near panic all wanted to climb into the boat immediately. But that would be very dangerous. It certainly was tough. As I was being lowered, I could see that the water was lapping up onto the deck, pushing the jelly boat to and from the edge of the boat. Whoever was manning the other end of the rope must have seen a good time to give me some slack to step over into the boat with Tope. After I was lowered into the boat, I quickly got out of the harness, then held our little boat close to Jenny while the crew lowered some things that they thought might be needed, such as a couple of coils of rope, a small barrel of water, the captain's sextant, and some extra oars. I was having a hard time holding the boat in place and yelled to Tope that we couldn't stay there much longer. The captain saw that too and signaled the crew to toss in the ropes and we were on our own. We had a separate rope tied from the bow of our boat to Jenny and let out some of that line to allow us to drift towards the stern of Jenny where the water seemed calmer. We were reaching the end of the scope on the rope when the water began to run out under us towards the stern of Jenny with great speed, so much so that it dragged the bow of our boat under the water and the line became taut. This caused the transom to stick up in the air. I knew I had to cut the rope or we would be sucked under for good. I barely had cut the rope when we turned to look back and see a huge wave we could hear rumbling towards us. The wave smashed into the raised stern of our boat and foam engulfed us. I don't know what happened next, other than everything going every which way and my clutching the front seat for dear life. After what seemed like a very long time, what must have been only a few seconds of total chaos, we found ourselves sitting in the boat in calm water. We somehow had been flung from next to Jenny to shallow water about a hundred yards further in from the surf in near total darkness. Fortunately, this boat had cork flotation attached under the seats, so it didn't sink. At first, I thought we had died and gone to heaven. We used the rope tied to the rear of our boat to tie onto a rock sticking up nearby. Our boat was swamped. Everything was gone except Captain's now empty sextant box, which we used to bail out our boat. By then, it was just starting to get light, and the waves breaking around Jenny looked like they were decreasing. At least the glow of the surf foam seemed to be further away from poor Jenny. We could also see that the last boat had been launched, and it was tied to a rock a few hundred feet to our right. We could just make out that there were two men in it. 
About the time we had our boat mostly bailed out, we could see one of the crew from the other boat wading his way towards us, carrying an oar. The water seemed to be only waist-deep. When he got close, we could see that it was old sails. We helped him into our boat and asked why he had brought the oar. He told us he saw our boat being tossed by the wave with everything flying out, and he knew we didn't have any oars anymore. He said that after we disappeared into the dark, they managed to launch the last boat, and he and Mr. Masters got into that one. Then they had pretty much the same experience as we did. His boat hit a rock, however, breaking the gunwale and starting a leak in the top plank. Mr. Masters was staying in the boat to keep bailing it. I could just make out that he was bailing with his hands. They did, however, manage to hold on to one oar while they were being tossed around, and Mr. Masters said that since our boat was in better shape, it should be used to go back to Jenny and ferry the rest of the people back to their boat. With only one oar, that meant I would have to scull, which I could do, but not very well. We gave the captain's bailer to old sails to take back to their boat and started back to Jenny. Most of the passengers had already well screened themselves out and were getting control of themselves when we got back to Jenny. From their higher vantage, they said they could see a small island about half a mile in from the reef. I sculled fairly close to Jenny's stern. The parts of the rails had been broken away by the aft mast when it was falling off. From there, people could be lowered, working off the cleats near the top port forward corner of the aft cabin. The tide had definitely gone out. The deck there was about four feet above the water, and the breakers were crashing far enough away that they were spent by the time they reached us. Tope was holding the boat in place while I stood in the middle, ready to receive the first person to be lowered. It was the youngest of the Sanborn children. He was about three years old and much too small to fit securely in the harness that old sails had made. The little guy was clearly quite scared when they began sliding him down the deck, and when he was about halfway past the cabin, the end of his shorts caught on something there, causing him to tip over sideways. He slipped clean out of the harness, slid straight down the deck, over the edge, right into my arms. He was trying to cry and smile at the same time. I was definitely smiling. I sat him down on the seat close to me and got ready to receive the next drop-in. All the next people got in without much trouble. When we had all the women, children, and most of the male passengers on board, we had 11 people in that little boat, and it was sitting quite low in the water. We took them over to the boat that Old Sales and Mr. Masters were in, and then went back for more. 
old sails was standing outside the boat holding a piece of coral against the side of their boat while Mr. Masters was using another chunk to pound the inside of the plank where it had broken. They were trying to close the grat, they said. After two more trips, we had everyone safely in our boats and then rowed to the little sand island where we all collapsed from exhaustion. After the sun had been up for a while, we gathered ourselves together to talk about what to do next. We quickly decided that trying to row to Australia or New Zealand in those two small boats would be foolhardy. Some of the crew could row back to the Jenny Lind to get some wood to light a fire on the sand island to signal a passing ship. But who knew how long it would be before another boat would come by within eyesight. The captain also added that in a good storm, it appears the sand island may become a wash, so we should try to stay there as short a time as possible. We were fortunate that one of the passengers was a medical man. His name was Mr. Beale, and he had been the ship's surgeon on a boat named Raja before he booked passage with us. He looked at the captain's injured leg and said it was just a bad bruise and he would be fine in a few days. The carpenters said that Jenny Lynn was damaged beyond repair and the only thing we could do was make a new, smaller boat. It seemed like an impossible task, but they said we could do it if we all worked together. Nobody had a better idea. The captain sent three crew members back to Jenny to salvage what food, water, and sails they could find. They found quite a bit of food, two small barrels of water, and several spare sails. I helped to row back to Jenny Lind several times, too. At low tide, the waves were breaking further out from Jenny's hulk, so the water was much calmer. The water was running through the hull, and lots of the rooms were flooded. We had to be very careful not to be trapped down there when the tide came back in. I went back for more goods, brought back some more stores and some small spars to make tents on the island with the spare sails as the sun was scorching. At the end of the day, we boiled some rice, since it was wet already, and all sat around to talk about building the boat and rationing what little water we had since most of the barrels had been broken. It was clear that drinking water was going to be a problem. Fortunately, the next day Mr. Beale said he thought he could take care of the drinking water problem. He knew how to construct a still to make drinking water from salt water, and he had noticed a boiler that might work for the purpose stowed below. We divided ourselves into three groups. The ship's carpenters would take some crew that had some boat building skills to build the boat. Another group would take the long boats back and then wade and swim a bit to Jenny to remove everything that could be used to make a new boat. The third group was headed by Mr. Beale to build and operate a still to make water. 
With lifted spirits, we set about making what it would take to save our lives. We thank God that Captain Taylor had ordered the second cook stove be stowed below. It survived the crash where it was located, while the working stove was smashed to pieces where it was. It was also lucky that the stove had a copper boiler on its side, and that's the first thing we are going to bring back with anything that could be used for tubing, as instructed by Mr. Beal. Mr. Beal proved to be a skillful tinkerer. By using the copper boiler, some copper tubing from the head, and some lead pipe from the deck drains, he had steam coming out of the top of the boiler in pipes running through another pan of seawater, producing fresh water out the end of the copper tubing. I don't think we could have made it without that still. The children were helpful carrying seawater to the still and filling containers with fresh water. Old sails cut pieces from the sail scraps, which he sewed together to make sun hats for the children. The women helped sew more for everybody as more scraps became available. I wish I could remember old Sales' name. He was Scottish, and we called him that not because he was a sailmaker, but because he was the oldest member of the crew. He was a man of many talents. He designed the rigging for the two masts we were making, marked all the locations on the masts and boat to install the gear. I was part of the crew that stripped poor Jenny of everything useful for boat building and delivering it to the boat builders. We went about our task with great zeal, pulling up deck planks and what hull planks we could get to. We saved as much as we could, even the used nails that weren't too bent and all the caulking we could remove without pulling it apart. We found half a barrel of pitch, which pleased the carpenters a great deal. We were fortunate to have two carpenters in the crew, and thus two sets of tools. More good luck came to us in the form of a long beam that drifted to the island. Both carpenters were puzzled as to just where it came from. It must have come from Jenny but it had no signs of any fasteners. It was a mystery, but it was perfect for the keel of the new boat. It took several days to get the materials needed and delivered to where they were starting to build the boat on the west end of the Sand Island. We found the captain's charts. Most were ruined. Removed the compass, brought back all the carpenter's tools remaining in the shop, and on one trip, we found a barrel full of porter in bottles, most of which were unbroken. We brought them back to the island, except for a few of them were empty when we got there. We recovered a couple of water barrels that weren't broken too badly and repaired them. We gave out a shout of joy when we found a small barrel of lime juice and there were many iron bars still laying in the bottom of the bilge, part of that shipment to Singapore. They were constantly underwater where they were, and we could think of nothing they could be employed for, so we left them. Eventually, we had removed everything useful from Jenny, and the boat builders 
needed more help to band on the planking and to make all the rigging. Everyone had a task, and the little island was humming with activity. Things were going well, and Mr. Beale had improved the still enough that we could borrow it to heat a steam box for bending the planking. Every day we grew more confident about saving ourselves. The new boat was starting to shape up. The ribs are all in place, and the carpenters had already put on several planks. Bending in those planks required heating them in a steam box to soften them enough to pull the ends together at the bow. The carpenters complained that they didn't have enough clamps to hold the planks in place while they were being nailed to the ribs. So we organized some of us to be human clamps to hold the planks in place while they were being fastened. We had to use rags to hold onto those hot planks fresh out of the steam box, and it was really starting to look like a boat. Little Island was boiling with activity. Many of the men were now employed putting the boat together or making masts and rigging. The women and children organized the food we'd saved from Jenny, which included several bags of flour that had been in the bilge. Even though they had gotten wet, the flour formed a crust on the inside of the bags that sealed the rest from damage. Eventually, had to take down the shelter tents to make the sails for the new boat. We made some cushions for sleeping from scraps of leftover sailcloth and other salvaged fabrics. We all knew that the day was coming soon when we would be able to leave our little island, and by then we were anxious to leave. Mr. Beale still was back to distilling drinking water again, making about 25 gallons a day. Everyone worked long hours together knowing that our combined effort was going to be our salvation. We all were literally itching to go, in part because the sand was populated with these nasty little insects that came out at night and gave us bites that itched. We called them sand fleas, and we all looked like measles cases. Finally, the day came to launch the boat. It wasn't easy. The carpenters had the boat built close to the edge of the island on a sloping beach. We took out the blocking under the boat that had made it level so that now it could slide down the beach to the water. It wouldn't slide. No matter how hard we pushed, it wouldn't budge. We had to dig down under the keel, slide in some leftover pieces of the wood to keep the boat from digging into the sand as we pushed it. Still, it was tough work. Even the kids helped. And eventually, she reached the water. We had ropes tied to her to keep her close. That was a beautiful sight floating there in the water. The captain and one of the carpenters rode out to the boat in one of the longboats and climbed on board. The rest of us stood on shore watching and wondering when we could get going. We knew we still had more work to do. The masts need to be installed, the sails put on, and all the revisions stowed aboard and, of course, find room for ourselves. Unfortunately, we were disappointed when we saw the captain and the carpenter come back from down below, 
calling for the boat to be hauled back onto the beach. It seems the boat was leaking and we had to do some more caulking of the seams. Getting the boat back out of the water was a real struggle. We had ropes tied to the boat every which way so that everyone was pulling, even the children, who thought it was great fun at first. Finally, at high tide, we got it out of the water enough to get at the seams that were leaking. We had to do some careful picking to salvage more caulking out of the remaining seams and what was left of Jenny. Most of the remains were underwater and we had to stand on jagged coral to reach down of the water into the seams. Several of us had no shoes and our feet got cut up. But we were able to get enough cotton to do the job. After the carpenters were satisfied with the installation of additional caulking, we launched her again and she passed inspection. Captain Taylor said that next we had to move the boat to a location about a quarter mile further up the beach where the water was deeper but still sheltered from the waves. He and the first mate scouted out the spot a few days before. With the prospect of leaving now near, everyone worked at a fever pitch to set up the masts and rig them. The carpenters both agreed that the boat needed more ballast. Seems we did have a use for all those iron bars underwater in the bilge of Jenny. Old Sails was a good swimmer, too, and a diver. And by tying ropes, we managed to retrieve enough bars to please the carpenters. We had to row the long bars out to the boat, hoist them, then lay them in the bottom of the bilge, which took quite a while. After that, we carried on lots of sand in bags that old sails had made from sail scraps. We spread the sand over the iron bars to make a level floor. Next, we loaded the boat with all the food and water barrels and sleeping pads and what personal items we still had rolled up to serve as our pillows. As the time to leave was about upon us, it became clear that it wouldn't be enough room for everybody on the boat. There was a curtain just behind the forward mast under the deck of what we called our schooner that made a private space for the two families. That resulted in the remaining 22 people having about two-thirds of the 30-foot boat to share. We decided to take one of the long boats along also. It had a mast, so it could sail along with the bigger boat. Plus, it would be tethered to the bigger boat by a rope to prevent separation. Members of the crew would take turns in the longboat, six at a time. There was a bit of a gamble taking longboat duty. If a storm came up quickly, that boat would have slim chances, tethered or not. Finally, the day came to put the fruit of all of our efforts to the test. We had been on the reef for 76 days without a storm big enough to wash over the island. But we knew one could happen any day. The second mate, Mr. Harper, arranged a schedule of shifts for all 15 of the crew to take our turns in the longboat. 
we all got aboard and said our thanks for being able to survive thus far. We pulled up the anchor, raised the sail, and headed out. It wasn't long before the little island was out of sight. It would never be out of mind. We just set our little schooner due west. The boat still leaked a little, but it was easily kept up with by a bucket and whoever was on watch but not steering. Eventually the planks swelled a bit and the leak slowed to a trickle. Except for the lack of food, the sail was pretty much uneventful. When we salvaged those bags of flour from Jenny, we saved the bags that looked the least damaged for the last. We had been living on a lot of pudding made from the flour and an occasional fish and pieces of salt beef that were, were shipping in the barrels, most of which was lost after we hit. Upon opening the last bag of flour, we discovered it had gone bad. It was full of red roots of some sort of mold or fungus, said Mr. Beale. That was to be our supply for the trip. We had to live on small portions of remaining odd fare from our salvage operations, mostly moldy biscuits and water. The fact that I'm telling you today proves that we made it to safety. There was fair weather almost the whole way. After heading west for 33 days, we saw what looked like smoke ahead on the horizon. Could be one of those steamboats was the consensus. Next day there was more smoke still dead ahead. It had to be land. About the time we could see actual terrain, the wind started to pick up and we were lucky to make it to the lee of an island before the storm got too bad. Next day we sailed down the coast eventually being sighted by a returning whaler. They stopped when they could see we were overloaded and in tatters. After many thanks from us, they gave us some beef, rice, and directions to Brisbane. We arrived there the following morning and created much fanfare. We shook our hands and hugged each other, for we all had saved each other by our mutual cooperation. Great things can be accomplished when people work together. That's it. The true account of the wreck of the Jenny Lind. A great survival story. That was Joan Baez humming along with the audience at the end there. That's from her greatest hits CD on A&M. A big thank you to Sue Basua of Melbourne, Australia. The great-great-granddaughter of Richard Holton. Thanks to Sue for supplying me with the excerpts from 
Richard Holton's Diary, Memories of R. Tope, and Newspaper Accounts from That Time. The reef they ran onto was uncharted at the time. Today it's known as Ken's Reef and can be seen on Google Maps. That's Ken with two N's. Hope you enjoyed it. That's an exclusive production of Boat Talk on Community Radio WERU-FM. You are listening to a pre-recorded Snow Day Boat Talk, so no phone calls this time. Next is an interview I did with a man named Ronald Grant in St. John, U.S. Virgin Islands, recorded a few months after Hurricane Irma. We were sitting on the beach under the bow of a uh, 40-something-foot catamaran that was thrown about 60 feet up from the water. So there'll be some background noise. Uh, Ronald Grant and Sandra Miller. We live on uh, a 1989 Catalina, three cabin, 42 feet, and we survived Hurricane Irma and Hurricane Maria in the Virgin Islands in a place called St. John in Hurricane Hole. The name of the boat is the Sandra Louise. His boat made it through Irma kind of okay. He stayed on shore. He had a friend who probably suffered from sediment being stirred up in his fuel tank by the rough water. Oh, we had a friend, Artis, because of the direction of the winds, the north shore of St. John would be the best shot. So they went around to the north shore into le- water lemon. Yeah. And they tucked in there. But Artis, who survived Irma, was thrown by sailing out, had engine trouble going around here. And he couldn't steer his boat into water limit. So he had to veer off to his alternate course on the north shore of St. Thomas. Artists has not been seen or heard of. The boat was found off the Dominican Republic. Ronald had another friend who stayed on his boat, a catamaran, who fared better ending up sitting in the mangroves. I'm getting an eyewitness account. Ray was one of them. He was on his boat. The winds came right down Water Creek, lifted the boats off the water. The boats were chained to their, to the chain and their anchors and stuff. Didn't matter. The boats were airborne. Some of them just fell back down. You know, pollution got squashed with water a little bit, but the catamarans were airborne. They just floated in the air off the water, topsy-turvy, swinging back and forth, and then upside upside down. They became kites. Yeah. And then Ray and Brenda just were lucky that they got blown. Blown into the mangroves. mangroves. So they did not get flipped. He, he was blind. He said, Ronald, I could see nothing. There was so much wind and water. There was zero visibility. Yeah, I knew I was moving fast. But when I came to a halt, I said, thank God. 
As I said, Ronald's boat made it through, but just barely. My anchor, my Danforth anchor, twisted. Like, just crazy twist, twist. It's on the beach, it's just like, it's a piece of art. Twisted. I asked what he would do next time. If I'm going to try and outrun the next storm, which I'm going to, to do, I'm not going to sit around and watch. Well, leave early. <laughs> yeah, yeah, leave early, yeah. real early, mm -hmm. and keep, I mean, that's why I have a sailboat. I won't leave my boat. You know, I'm not going to be on her necessarily, but I'm not going to tie her up. There you have Ronald Grant. This is a pre-recorded boat talk. We can't take phone calls at this time. Next is another boat wreck story. This one is a sad lesson. A proud new boat owner just took delivery of his 48-foot racer cruiser sailboat, loaded with all the latest navigation electronics and three of his good buddies. After leaving Rhode Island and passing through the Cape Cod Canal, they put Mount Desert Rock on their autopilot as the next waypoint on the way to Mount Desert Island. Later, they sailed into thick fog in the Gulf of Maine. The autopilot worked perfectly. They ran right smack into Mount Desert Rock, right up on the rocks. They had to call for salvage. That's where my friend John Mayhew comes in. This is John talking about that job, beginning with his brother and himself heading out with their boat, airbags, and other salvage gear in the middle of the night. So now we had lightning, we had fog, it was raining, uh, it was dark in the pocket. The big, well, you know, four to six, big enough. And uh, we uh, got up over the, close to where the boat was, and then we could just make out the lights of the boat. We couldn't see the boat at all. We could make out the lights, and the owner was kind of guiding us in on the radio to let us know, you know, how to come in, at how, what angle to come in the rock to, because, we, like I say, we were totally blind. We couldn't see a thing. It was just, you know, just like being blindfolded. We got in close where we could judge where the lights were on the boat and what our position was, and we set a big anchor. And once we got that set, uh, my brother got in the inflatable and went into the, into the rock. Well, when he got about 15, 20 feet away from the rock, the swell picked him up and carried him up onto the rock and set him on the rock and then washed back out. Just just missed the rudder with his head. And you get in there, and the swells were already starting to break in around the, the keel and um, the up along the port side of the boat, which was, was laid over on his port side. So we determined there wasn't going to be any time to secure any airbags on there. So uh, we decided the best thing to do, with time being short, was to get a line on it and to keep it from going further up the rock as the tide came in. And uh, this because by this time the swells were starting to rock the boat a little bit. And um, so we decided the best thing to do was to get a line on it and hold it straight out, which is what we did. And it took us three attempts to get a line back out to our boat because of the conditions, you know, and trying to do it in an inflatable or whatever. And we finally did get it out there and uh, hooked onto it. Once we hooked onto it, we put a strain on the stern of the boat, uh, hooked by a stern cleat, and we started putting a strain on it. And we actually opened the landing craft right up and held it there. And as the boat 
as the water started coming in under the boat, the boat started giving a little bit and coming a little bit more our way. We weren't really pulling it off the rock at this time. We were just kind of turning it on the rock so it was in line, more in line with our boat. And uh, then there's the swells coming in. I mean, it picked it up and tipped it over three or four times back and forth for us to pick it up, stand it on the keel and flop it over onto the port side. And then the backs, backwash would come down off the rock and flop it over onto the starboard side. And the boat took a pretty good thrashing. Um, you know, which told us it was a good thing that we got there, and we did because it, it wouldn't have taken much of that. You know, before it would have been there would have been nothing. I would have pulverized it right on the rock and then sucked it back out into the sea. But we, uh, with the, by holding the steady strain on it, um, eventually one good swell came in and lifted it. When it did, it freed it a little bit, and it came towards us, and we thought we had it. And then it, uh, the keel hung up on another chunk of the rock the bottom of the keel stood up on one of the ledges and then it rocked it back and forth two or three more times until it got just a little bit of water and enough water underneath it where we could pull it free of the of the rock again and uh once we got it free of the rock we started hauling it away from the rock as fast as we could but the boat was kind of overpowering ours because it was so much larger than our landing craft that we didn't um you know have complete control of the boat so as soon as we got it away from the rock enough, we felt it was safe to take the strain off it and back up to the boat so I could jump on. I had already had my dry suit on and uh, I had a flashlight and, you know, wanted to get on the boat and see if we were taking all water. We needed to get the crash pumps on. You know, it was kind of a hurry-up operation at that point. And get on the boat and realize that we weren't taking on any water, or if it was, the bilge pumps were keeping up with it because it wasn't floating any of the cabin sole boards. And uh, we... Uh, did a quick assessment on it, got a line on the bow, just got the hawser line changed over from the stern to the bow and put a heavier hawser on it and we're getting rigged up to start towing it away from the rock and uh, that's when we realized we didn't have any steering. So then I had to unload the lazarette and get in there and I really realized at this time that the steering cables had come off in the quadrant and they were wrapped a couple times around the rudder post. So then I had to take a pair of bolt cutters and that this meant the boat had to come back, the landing craft had to come back up against us again so I could get, they could hand me a pair of bolt cutters. I got a pair of bolt cutters and get in there and cut one of the steering cables. And once I did that, then I could spin the rudder back the way it was supposed to be and get the emergency tiller in place. Once we did that and got the emergency tiller in place, then we took it under tow and started heading back in the shore. And it took us around six hours to tow it back in. Really, it was a struggling match because of a following sea and the boat, the sailboat being so much bigger and heavier than our landing craft. It was uh, about an hour at a time on the tiller is all you could take on the uh, emergency tiller, and then we had to, um, you know, change over. We'd have to switch over back at sea. There was a lot of jumping back and forth from boat to boat, which is a little dangerous in those conditions. But... Uh, you know, we did it and didn't just say take a shift of an hour or so on the tiller. We went back and forth and we finally got it hauled home and we took it over to the Hinkley Company and uh, put it on the dock at the Hinkley Company. And when the yard crew came in, as soon as they had the water, they lifted it out. And that's where she sits now. What What was the damage to the boat? Oh, it. Uh, there wasn't much holding the keel on. The, the keel took it pretty hard. <clears throat> you could see where the keel fastened to the hull. It was separated all the way around in pretty good shape. There was a good a good gap there. If it, it at least stretched out the keel bolts. If it didn't, it probably popped a couple of them. It was still obviously still on there, but it wasn't on there by much. 
and it scuffed up the bottom of the keel pretty good where it ground on the rocks and uh, tore about six inches off the bottom of the rudder. The rudder was all flayed open on the bottom where she come across the rocks. And there was three or four places on each side of the hull that looked like, uh, well, the only thing I can compare it to is it looked like it, it took a hard-boiled egg. Hard-boiled egg indeed. Not what it was cracked up to be. The boat ended up being totaled. And Boat Talk is about totally out of time, too. Sorry we weren't here to take any phone calls. If you enjoy listening to Boat Talk and are not yet a member of WERU, please consider coming on board. There are no set fees to become a community radio supporter. Whatever floats your boat will keep the green tide rising. Boat Talk wouldn't exist without fuel from y'all, so please join your peers before we get too dingy. Hopefully, we'll be back live on the next Boat Talk, the second Tuesday of next month, 10 to 11 a.m. Thanks for listening and supporting Community Radio, WERU-FM, Blue Hill. Sail, sir. I survive the pits of fish and take some home to lie, sir.